0: Okay, mic check. One, two, one, two, one, two. Uh, yeah, let's get it. And now the number one most requested song on WQQR. Will you be going to the the uh, pajama disco tonight? What? No, hit me. Get no, some cash in my hand. Oh the door, Hit you with a gun. Oh, come on, man, give me some money. Now I'll be bossing. Oh. shit.
1: Chilly outside, she wouldn't
0: have got a bowl. This is a skeleton, this is Bones! Would you run from Calista Fly High? Back up! Mind your business, that's all, This business! Can I have it? No, oh, no, 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 come on, can I have it? Can I? Can I have it? Who's <laughs> holding to buy a brownstone on my block in my neighborhood on my side of the street? Hey you, where are you going? I'm going to mind
1: my, my fucking business, that's where I'm going. Do you have a problem with that, officer? What's the fucking
0: procedure when you got a gun in your head. but I got a. I have a right on to turn my collar, darling. I, I am, no call I call am me. beautiful, no call and I know I'm beautiful. No. And that's the double truth, Ruth. Yes, 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 y'all. Welcome back to Adventures in Black Cinema, your passport to black film. My name is Desmond Thorne. I will be your host and your film aficionado for the day, as I am every day. I want to talk about in personal life that I have a new nephew. (sighs) I am so excited to meet him. We welcomed little Elijah into the world this past week. And, oh man, he is so cute. I've only seen pictures of him so far because, you know, COVID regulations and stuff like that, needs to give it some time. you know, shit is on high alert in New York. I've been very safe, but, you know, things are, quite crazy, quite unpredictable. And I always like to give people space when they have a new baby. Like, it takes a little bit of time for the baby to get acclimated, for the family to get acclimated. I mean, now with his new nephew, (laughs) they have Elijah and they also have Isaiah, my three-year-old nephew. So there's a lot going on, I'm sure. So I'm very excited to meet this cute little munchkin and see what he's like. He already, just from pictures, seems so alert and intelligent, just like his older brother and just like his parents. Shout out to my sister-in-law, Danielle, and my brother, Christopher. So, i so excited that this family is growing and expanding and Aww. I'm already having dreams and visions and thoughts of what this little one is going to be like as he grows older and as he, you know, starts to show his personality in ways like his older brother. So yeah, I'm so thrilled and excited and glad that you know, out of all of this craziness happening in the world, that there is some beauty, some new things happening, and some birth, some gorgeous birth. So yes, so excited to go to Jersey and meet this little munchkin. And today's episode, greetings from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We go on a Philly this week. And this week's episode is called Adventures in Invention and Interracial Relationships. And we will be getting into the nitty gritty of the queer classic film from the 90s, The Watermelon Woman, which we did early, early on in the podcast as a Trust and Believe. So I'm so excited to get into the nitty gritty of a Trust and Believe, a film that you perhaps have not heard of or have not seen. And I hope that this episode will get you into this film. But first, before we get into the nitty gritty of a Trust and Believe, we will be getting into into an actual trust and believe. Now come, come on, on. on. I got don't to go. Go to me! So first of all, please, if you can hear it, pardon this fucking Memorial Day drilling that is happening outside of my window somewhere. So you may hear that intermittently. I apologize, but. Welcome to Trust and Believe. Trust and Believe is a segment that I do on the show quite often. And this is where I put you on a black film that is under the radar. I'm talking an independent film, a foreign film, just some shit that I want to put y'all onto that I think is well worth knowing. Woo! And if you didn't know, Now you know. And
1: if you don't know, now you know, nigga.
0: Uh. So this week's Trust and Believe is a film that I honestly may have already done before. I'm not sure, but I just always want to shout and sing the praises of this film off the rooftops. So this week's Trust and Believe is a film called Punks. Hey, I seen you in the club before, haven't
1: I? Yeah, I, I think so.
0: Is your friend of yours? Yeah? Why do you ask? Because he's hot. Uh-oh. Think you can hook me up? Yeah. Wait a minute, we ain't in the matchmaking business. Why don't you take us up in there and hook yourself up? My name's Steve, by the way. Marcus.
1: So, Mark, what's the deal? Marcus. I didn't have tangerine, so I got you passion. Thanks. So, who's your friend?
0: Darby, this is Steve. Steve. Darby. Hi Darby. Darby Steve was just asking Marcus about the nature of his relationship with you. Oh, is that right? Mm-hmm. I was just trying to find out. Oh, well, you know, if you were trying to push up on Marcus it don't bother. Spoken. You snooze, you lose, Steve. At first you did this, now you want to get this to girl. (laughs) PUNKS was released in 2000. It was directed by Patrick Ian Polk, who eventually went on to do the show Noah's Ark, which was very seminal to my middle school, high school years, whenever that show came out. And PUNKS is a great movie, and it is about a group of black queer friends in LA. It really very much centers on their friendship, on their love lives, how they navigate the world, how they navigate LA, which sometimes seems to be a different part of this world. But this is a wonderful film. It is truly one of the few films that does solely focus on queer black male friendship and how these friendships operate and the support systems that we often need and often need to rely on to make it through. It's a really beautiful, beautiful film. This cast is really great. A couple of recognizable faces. First recognizable face we have is the lead of the film, Seth Gilliam, who was also on The Wire.
1: When you walk in the garden, watch your
0: So yes, indeed, we do have a nigga from the wire in punks. As I always say, I have a theory that you will find at least one nigga from the wire in a quarter of all black film and television, and this film fits the bill. We also have Dwight Ewell in this film, Renoli Santiago, Rockman Dunbar, and Jasmine, And we also have a little cameo from Loretta Devine, who I always love to see pop up in films. And I mean, this film honestly means a lot to me. I saw it a long time ago at a screening at Nighthawk Cinema in Williamsburg before I started working at Nighthawk or right around the time I started working at Nighthawk as a server. And this was a co-combined screening with New Fest, the New York LGBTQ film festival that I used to work for, and Nighthawk. So this was the first meeting of those two worlds, which was really wonderful. And this screening honestly just changed my life. I had not seen a film like this before that does center on Black queer friendships and Black queer love in a very naturalistic way. That was also fun and also just felt incredibly real to me and real to what I have experienced. And it made me really want more queer black male friends. I don't have too many of them. I used to have a really pretty close black queer friend that I used to work with when I worked at Alice's Teacup, and it was always great Kikiing with him and everything like that. And, you know, he moved back to Philly, not back to Philly, back to Chicago. (laughs) So it's kind of, I'm kind of still wanting that network out here. You know, I do live in Astoria where there aren't too, too many of us in terms of black queer folks. And there was a really great place uptown in Washington Heights called No Parking that was a great black gay club that has of course closed So I'm still looking for that out here, that network. And this film so beautifully shows that and shows the great Black queer scene in L.A. It's just wonderful. It's just so much fun. And it makes me feel at home, though this takes place in a time where I was 10 years old and in L.A. in which I have never lived but have been a few times. It's just a great film. And it's a great queer film, queer black film, where it isn't so focused on black trauma, which again, is also beautiful to see. And unfortunately, though this film was incredibly popular at film festivals, including many queer film festivals and Sundance at the time, this film, because it contains a music cue by Sister Sledge that they could not clear their rights for, this film was unavailable on streaming, and it is also unavailable pretty much in general. You do have to find a screening of this happening in person, and these screenings do have to be free because they have not cleared the rights for this song. I was very lucky to be able to see it at that free screening of a print The only one that I believe exists that belongs to Patrick Ian Polk. So I hope that we can do another screening of this film sometime in the future. And if I do do a screening of it, you will be the first to know. So when I say come check out punks, I mean come check out punks. So... After this little commercial ad break, we will be getting into the nitty-gritty of another queer classic film, The Watermelon Woman. So stay tuned. into the nitty gritty of The Watermelon Woman. The Watermelon Woman was released in 1996 and it was directed by Cheryl Dunier. And here's a little summary of the film if you haven't seen it or haven't even heard of it. This is one, like I said, that was formerly a trust and believe independent film, very small film, so it's quite possible you haven't seen or heard of it. So here's a summary. This is the story of a young woman named Cheryl, played by the writer-director Cheryl Dunye, who is an aspiring filmmaker and works at a video store with her friend Tamara, played by Valerie Walker. And Cheryl has an obsession. She is looking for as much information as she can on an actress from the 1930s and 40s films who played mammy roles and was simply known as the Watermelon Woman.
1: Hi, I'm Cheryl and I'm a filmmaker. Uh, Nah, I'm not really a filmmaker, but I have a videotaping business with my friend Tamara and I work at a video store, so I'm working on being a filmmaker. The problem is I don't know what I want to make a film on. I know it has to be about black women because our stories have never been told. So I've been renting movies. No, I haven't been renting movies, but I get movies from the video store that I work at. And I've taken all these films out from the 30s and 40s with black actresses in them, like um, Hattie McDaniel and Louise Beavers. And um, in these films, in some of the films, the black actresses aren't even listed in the credits. And I was just totally shocked by that. So in this one film that came into the store, Plantation Memories, I saw the most beautiful black mammy named Elsie. Her name, the Watermelon Woman. That's right, Watermelon Woman. Is Watermelon Woman her first name, her last name, or is it her whole name? I don't know, but girlfriend has it going on, and I think I've figured out what my project's gonna be on. I'm gonna make a movie about her. I'm gonna find out what her real name is, who she was and is, everything I can find out about her. Because something in her face, something in the way she looks and moves is, is serious, is interesting.
0: As Cheryl digs deeper into her research, she finds that the watermelon woman's name was Faye Richards. She lived in Philly, just like Cheryl, and she was also a lesbian, just like Cheryl. As she continues to dive in headfirst, she begins a romance with a white woman who's new to the neighborhood named Diana, played by Guinevere Turner, who begins to put a wedge between Cheryl and Tamara such a great film. I, out of all these people, it's been cool to see Cheryl and Guinevere still doing their thing. Guinevere has been a screenwriter on many films that you may recognize, such as American Psycho. And Cheryl has been directing so much television. I mean, she's done Star. She's done Empire. She's done Lovecraft Country. So she's really been doing her thing for sure. You know, we do see this a lot with prolific female filmmakers. They make one big film, one film that really jump their career, and then they get relegated to television, which before television got really big and cinematic, it did seem like almost like a wasteland for female directors. And now since television has changed and become more cinematic with the binging culture and streaming services and things like that, it has definitely become less of a wasteland and has become a place for these women to get fucking Emmy nominations and Emmy awards and stuff and make their way back to films and TV being seen as comparable as movies, it's Definitely a strategy backfiring in a good way (laughs) from Hollywood to female directors. So that's been great to see. And it's also interesting that I have not seen Valerie Walker in anything else. I mean, I looked up her IMDb page, and as excellent as she is in this movie as Cheryl's best friend Tamara, where has she gone? Did she decide to stop acting or was she not given roles? I mean... Both things are so incredibly possible given the landscape of Hollywood and what it is and especially what it was at that time. But she's incredible. And I really hope that whatever Valerie Walker is doing right now, that she is very happy with it. So here's some fun facts. Fun fact number one, as you can tell from watching the film, much of Cheryl's character is autobiographical to Cheryl Dunier herself, including the fact that Cheryl's actual mother is in the film. And her mother is great in the scene that she's in. It's really wonderful. It blurs the line of documentary and narrative film so well. And the aspect of Cheryl being in an interracial relationship also rings true. As at one point, Cheryl was dating a woman named Alexandra, who is a producer on this film and is now a professor and chairperson of the Department of Film at Brooklyn College. I had the privilege of once talking to this woman, Alexandra, and she did say she was like, yeah, this movie, so much of this movie is my life. So it's still she still holds in a very close place and her and Cheryl are still close to each other. Fun fact number two, this film features many actual figureheads and familiar faces from the queer art scene, including Cheryl Clark, Camille Paglia, David Rakoff, Sarah Shulman, V.S. Brody, and the aforementioned Alexandra. Fun fact number three, in 2021, this film was selected for preservation by the U.S. Library of Congress for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. And I would say that this film is all three. Culturally, it's important as being the first feature film directed and released by a black lesbian. It is historically significant for that reason as well. And it's definitely aesthetically significant in the way that they use different forms for shooting this film. There are many parts of this film that are, you know, shot on film and have been restored gorgeously. Gorgeously. I think this restoration happened in 2016. And then there are many parts that are shot on video. So it's really always cool to see mixed media You know, the whole film has a 90s vibe just throbbing and thriving all throughout it. And that especially rings true for these parts that are shot on video, that are meant to be shot on video by the characters in the film. So, let's talk about my first experience. So my first experience with this movie is that a few years ago, around 2018, I was dating this guy, It was really great. He was a lover of film. You know, he's still alive, but (laughs) we are no longer dating, unfortunately. And it was the mixture of me dating him and this time in my life that I felt this need to really connect with some queer films that I have missed over time. Some historically significant queer films. I had heard a lot about this film because it is such a landmark in queer cinema, being part of the 90s, new cinema, new queer cinema time period, as well as this film being important in Black cinema because it's the first feature film directed by a Black lesbian, as I said. And when I saw it, I loved it. I loved the simplicity and the scrappiness and the indiness of it all. And it also just felt so incredibly honest in terms of capturing not only a black lesbian point of view, but the point of view of an aspiring filmmaker as well as someone in an interracial relationship. And those are things that we will all be getting into when we dig into these themes of invention and interracial relationships. So the first thing that I find immediately fascinating about this film is that, of course, you know, in real life, Cheryl did want to do research into the history of Black queer cinema and perhaps, you know, where some of these people are, who they were, etc., But she couldn't find anything in real life, so what she did is invent the watermelon woman and invent this kind of history around the watermelon woman based on real things, such as the mammy trope, which we will get into the history of. But the fact that she had to invent this history is so fascinating because there are several elements of our history as Black people in America that's been lost. Some of it's recently been found, but a lot of it's been lost because, of course, you know, none of it was really written down to a certain extent. It's not like white Hollywood necessarily cared about these people, and it's not like, in terms of Black queer people who were involved in these movies, that they were necessarily out, that they wanted people to know that they were queer, And that's such an important thing to think about because they were obviously there. Like, there's no way that there was ever any kind of Hollywood in which gay Black folks did not exist. It's just impossible. But how are we to be able to find out who they were? And it's so funny because when I was first watching this movie, it's done in such a way where if you don't know that she's inventing it, some of these documentary sections that she shoots on video kind of seem like they could be real. I mean, the scene with her mom where she's talking to her mom about if she knew who the watermelon woman was, It's so funny because her mom is such a good actor that she delivers everything so naturally. When she says that she kind of recognizes Faye Richards, she's like, oh yeah, yeah, she was one of the gang. Like she would, you know, be out and about and stuff. And then she looks at Cheryl and she's like, I think that you would have liked these people a lot. And that's where Cheryl first gets the idea that Faye Richards could have been a lesbian. And I also love this part where this is in the same section where she's asking people out and about if they have heard of the Watermon woman. And she asked this group of Black gay men who the, if they've heard of the Watermon woman. And it's just so funny and so accurate. And a lot of this does still feel relevant to today. Like, it's funny how that group of gay Black men do remind me of the dudes from Punks, which is the movie that we just talked about. And it's not like we have discovered much more at this point, right? You know, this movie was released in 1996, and it's not like we know a lot about queer Black Hollywood now either or a lot of Black queer beacons from that time period. And this idea of knowing about these people is important because it's important to know that there were people that came before us that were doing the same things, that were wanting to do the same things, and, you know, it's important in terms of queer mentorship. Like, we as queer people, as queer artists, as queer people just in general, as queer Black folks just living and existing in this world, having mentors who were there before us that can help us get through those times of feeling, alone and feeling like there is no predecessor, so that we have to invent our own history through our own work. I think that's something that can absolutely still be done and should be done in a certain way. I mean, this movie is great. And at the same time, having those people around to be able to guide us would just be next level. It would be an absolutely invaluable thing to be able to have these actual conversations with people who are around. Now, Cheryl does eventually, kind of when she's down her rabbit hole of researching and history and things like that, she does encounter people who were there and that new fae and things like that and historians and such, but yeah, I want to know, this is making me realize now that I need to see if I can find some books on queer black history, specifically in film, because I think this idea is so fascinating. The impossibility of a Hollywood or a black Hollywood existing without queer people is just not possible so now this is making me want to do my own research which is another very important thing about this movie is because it does wake up the fact that you can do your own digging and there are parts in this movie you know it taking place in the 90s where they're doing research in the library which threw me all the way back to middle school and high school research like digging through databases, digging through the reference section, getting those reference cards and everything. And it's kind of crazy to see how that technology has become slightly irrelevant now and how it's in fact actually easier today to do one's own digging and to do one's own research. So I honestly, I don't have an excuse. (laughs) I do not have an excuse. I have an excuse in that I know things will be harder to find in general. It's not going to be, you know, things that immediately pop up. But I have less of an excuse in the fact that I can just get online and look up some stuff. So I should do that because I have done that with the next thing that we are gonna be talking about, which is the history of the mammy trope. So another one of our trusts and beliefs in the past is a documentary created by Marlon Riggs, who is also a queer filmmaker at the time that Cheryl was working. And this is a documentary called Ethnic Notions. And Ethnic Notions gets into the many various Black stereotypes as portrayed in the media, in advertisements, in books, in dolls, in so many different things throughout history, and how those stereotypes manifest today. And it's still incredibly relevant. The Mammy stereotype was created after slavery and the, what is called the antebellum period. And this was a stereotype created by people who held slaves in these conservative and racist areas of the country. And I mean, it's not like it was just them who portrayed it either, but they created this stereotype of the mammy to combat the ways that abolitionists were talking about how terrible slavery was. They wanted to combat that with this very wholesome image of black women who worked for white families and nursed white families' children and were very happy and content doing so. Uh, They were always domestic workers, and this is obviously a false narrative because These people wanted to basically say that like, oh, slavery wasn't that bad. Here are these people who actually enjoyed the work that they were doing. And this, one of the first depictions of this is Aunt Chloe in the book Uncle Tom's Cabin. And this is something that we've seen a lot. They're often portrayed as very dark-skinned, older overweight. And there's also this kind of deference to white authority, to white people, kind of the the yes sir, the yes ma'am. And then also eventually there was also a bit of a sass that was added to this character as well. And... One of the first major depictions of this in film that is very well known is Hattie McDaniel's character in Gone with the Wind, whose character's name is Mammy. And it's just very telling that this was the first African-American person to win an Oscar. Now, to me, there's nothing against Hattie McDaniel, in my personal opinion, you know, she wanted to work as an actor and she took a role, the only one that was offered to her, unfortunately. A lot of people came at her when I think that what should have happened in that sense is a combating against the Mammy stereotype itself. And this is not something that we have seen die out, right? We've seen it transfer over time. We've seen it transfer into roles where men play mammies, such as Martin Lawrence in Big Mama's House, which does not necessarily even really provide any commentary That film did have an opportunity to provide some commentary, some contemporary commentary on how those stereotypes can be hurtful, or not how they can be hurtful, how they are hurtful, and how they are rooted in dishonesty and deeply rooted in racism. And of course, we have The Help. The Help, which was a book written by a white woman, from a white woman's perspective, and the film as well, handled by white people. And of course, the major criticism of that being like, why are we bringing these back? Why are these handled by white people? Again, without necessarily as much commentary as I think is necessary to truly combat these stereotypes, You know, people, again, came at Viola Davis a bit, where Viola Davis is, in a way, coming from a point of view of, you know, my mother and grandmother were maids, so I wanted to represent, you know, how these women felt in these situations which is coming from an honest place. And at the same time, you know, this is handled by white folks. What do they really know about this from their perspective? You know, what can they add? Because it was not about them ever. And we see this in products. You know, Aunt Jemima was a very, very big thing. And they only recently changed these images of Aunt Jemima. So this is something that we're definitely still fighting with. It's insane how this is something that started in the 1800s, and this movie was made in 1996, and this is still something that we are dealing with in terms of media. And this is why it's so important when we're talking about these films to understand what the perspective is and what the gaze is and things like that so that we understand, like, what exactly the message is, you know? What is the image? What is the life that is being portrayed back on us? And how that influences how we see ourselves. These portrayals of Black people, the Mammy, the Jezebel, all of these different stereotypes that we have seen and still see today throughout media, they are meant to be a reflection of how we see ourselves. So if people are seeing these women that were happy, living in servitude and being enslaved then that is what a lot of people are going to believe and that is what a lot of people to a certain extent believed it is really crazy and to also take this stereotype of the mammy that is always seen as asexual just completely not sexy at all, just completely devoid of all sexuality, to take this stereotype and to make it into a woman who was a lesbian, who Cheryl discovers was like out and about and was seen in all of these places and was really part of the Black lesbian scene is quite incredible. And again, when Cheryl is doing this research and even in queer spaces, can't find anything on this Black lesbian woman is very telling. It's a history that's lost on both sides because in American history, you're not gonna find as much about Black people to really go in and dig and get into the nitty gritty of how things actually were for us at any given time at any given moment before a certain period of time. And then also within queer history, a lot of our shit is lost. It's just a lack of care in these white spaces and a lack of us being able to really record our history to a certain extent. But it really does come down to a lack of care, a lack of preservation of our history on both sides, which is really, really sad. And what Cheryl is doing here is subversive by combining these two things, by asking the question of, you know, what if some of these people who are relegated to these roles, what was their life like outside of these roles? You know, um, and what if... This woman was not only a black quote unquote figurehead within cinema, within black cinema, but what if she was also queer? What if she was also a big figurehead, a lost figurehead in queer cinema? And an interesting thing starts to happen as Cheryl does her research. She meets a white woman named Diana at her video store, and that really starts to affect how she sees the watermelon woman, how she sees herself, and it really starts to get crazy in a way. It's not like balls to the wall kind of crazy, like getting into some sort of like um, surrealism or anything like that, but it's interesting to see what happens when a white person joins Cheryl's story.
1: You know it's uh, two for one Monday through Thursday. Really? Yeah. I'm having a hard time deciding. What do you think? Cleopatra Jones, Jason's Lyric, or a personal best? Hmm, well Cleopatra Jones is really fun. Why don't you do Cleopatra Jones and Carrie? I think the two go really well together. No, but Carrie, I hate Susie SpaceX. She's all weird and pale and thin and anorexic in this movie. I kind of like my girls with meat on their bones, you know what I mean? Anyway, I just saw it. Well, um, there's always uh, some sci-fi like Aliens or how about uh, Repulsion with Catherine Deneuve. She goes nuts in her apartment one night. (laughs) I just moved into a new apartment. I don't think I need that. Well, help yourself. It's two for one. Okay, thanks for your suggestions. You're welcome. So who's the cutie? Some customer. She's got a nice bone structure if you're into white girls. Do you think she is or isn't in the family? Tamara, why are you always constantly clacking women? We're lesbians, remember Cheryl? We're into female-to-female attractions. So
0: the way that interracial relationships manifest in this movie is really interesting. It feels very true to life for me, and it's interesting how this movie starts off with Cheryl and Tamara doing a videography doing some videography work for a interracial wedding. It's kind of an interesting bit of setup that you don't necessarily know is set up as you're watching it the first time. And what ends up happening is as Cheryl starts to get deep into her research on the watermelon woman and Faye Richards, she meets this woman named Diana in the video store. And perhaps the most well-known scene in this movie is when she meets Diana. And Diana is looking for movies to rent and Cheryl is giving her some recommendations. And in this scene, what I love is that it shows Black folks' love for cinema through Cheryl. Like she's giving her all these little combos, including a double feature of Repulsion and Cleopatra Jones, which I would be very interested to take part in one day. But it's very interesting to see how Diana starts to seep into Cheryl's research as well as her life. So basically what ends up happening is that Cheryl and Diana start dating and... You know, Cheryl is knee-deep in this research, and Diana, in some ways, starts to kind of take over the research a little bit, you know, putting her two cents in. And also, her relationship starts to take over her friendship with Tamara. So, there's a part where Diana and Cheryl are watching a Black film, And you can just see and tell that Diana really isn't listening or paying attention in the way that she should. And this is the kind of thing that I have seen and experienced happen in many relationships that I have taken part in that are interracial. This kind of lack of understanding and this lack of listening when things can potentially get a little uncomfortable or when there is kind of like an education trying to happen. Like there is an aspect of interracial relationships where we kind of feel this responsibility to educate our white counterparts on our history, our experience, our identity, when they really should just do it themselves but really, again, only to a certain extent. There is a balance that needs to be struck here because black fetish... Fetishization. Black fetishization. That is such a hard word to say. God damn it. It's such a hard word to say. Um, it goes deep. Um, you can definitely see that in Diana's character in a lot of ways. There's a part where... Diana comes to a dinner that is hosted by Tamara and Tamara's girlfriend. And she's talking about how, oh, yeah, I was born in Jamaica and like how, you know, she cares about all these black causes and how she's kind of taking over Cheryl's project in that. She knows this white woman who was connected to the white director that Faye Richards was working with and who Faye supposedly had a relationship with. And when you see this white woman in a black space with these three black women, like she's taking the joint out of turn, which is a big no-no. And you can see a little bit of Cheryl's assimilation In that, you know, Cheryl is wanting to make Diana feel as comfortable as possible in these black spaces where that's not Cheryl's job. And that's something that we do so, so often. Like Cheryl wanting to hear another white song. And that's something that I have had to manage a couple of times in my own relationships, you know, always kind of checking in and things like that. But that's something that I have certainly left behind. Because like I said, it's not our job to do that. You know, if you have made the decision to be in a relationship with me, I think it's important for you to do your own education. Like, I shouldn't have to spell everything out for you. I shouldn't have to let you know every single thing about my experience. Like, of course there are times where those conversations pop up, but to really take the initiative and to do your own digging. And again, like, I'm not asking you to be one of these white people who is on some black power shit. But I'm asking you to do the work, and I'm asking you to acknowledge many things about your own people and what they have done to us, et cetera. And I need you to be able to listen. Listening is such an underrated value in our society in general, and it's incredibly underrated in terms of Black people. And white people. White people don't know when to just shut up and listen. And Diana certainly doesn't. There is a kind of wannabe blackness about her. And when she brings Cheryl to Mrs. Paige Fletcher's house, who is a woman who is related to the director of many films that the watermelon woman worked on leading people to believe that there was some kind of relationship because you know the only bits of research that cheryl is able to find is in relation to this white woman which is an interesting parallel when she begins to have a relationship with diana so when they go to this woman's house this white woman it's important to note she still has black help. She still has essentially a mammy in her house. She gets upset when Cheryl really starts to dig into these truths about Faye's relationship and about Faye's roles in these films. And I also need to note that Diana says all this shit that I hate when white people do this shit. She says some shit like, I had three black boyfriends. My father's sister's husband is black. Like, that fetishization goes deep. And she does not, importantly, she does not come to Cheryl's aid when this white woman is, you know, spouting off some bullshit and basically telling her to get out of her house. Like, the help... And the assistance from the white people rarely comes when it's actually needed. And there's also this interesting turnaround that happens when Cheryl gets into her research near the end of the film and discovers one of Faye's old lovers. And Faye's old lover is, of course, older at this point, and Cheryl doesn't get to meet her because she's in the hospital, but she does write her a letter and she her letter is just very angry and concerned because she spells out the truth that Faye and this woman, this director, this white director who's played by Alexandra, who was Cheryl's real girlfriend at one point. Very interesting use of that. She goes on to say that, like, no, this wasn't really a relationship. Like, Faye did what she had to do so that she could work in movies, which is what I was saying about Hattie McDaniel. But this older woman is like, don't get it twisted. Like, Faye was deep into the Black community and she loved Black women. And two things that she says that I think are really important to the story is why did you ever want to include a white woman in a black woman's story which is essentially a mirror into Cheryl including Diana so heavily in her story and Diana getting so in between Cheryl and Tamara's relationship because Tamara is not with the shits Tamara, who again is played excellently by Valerie Walker, and I wish I could see her in more things, really gets miffed because Diana creates this wedge not only between Cheryl and Cheryl's research, but between Cheryl and Tamara's friendship. The way that their friendship is presented before Diana comes in, it feels like such an important need in their lives, to have someone who really shares your experience, to always really be at your side in terms of working and in terms of being a friend. And of course, because Cheryl is dating this white woman, there is a slight assimilation to whiteness that we see happen with Cheryl, and Tamara is not with that at all. And again, to see this wonderful depiction of Black queer friendship develop a wedge because this white woman feels very real. And what Faye's lover also says is that our family will always only have each other. And I think that's really important. I mean, I don't have anything against interracial relationships. I've been a part of them before. My sister-in-law is white, and she is one of those people who has always done her own research, has always really been with the shits, and has always known what her place is in the world as a white woman who is married to a black man, who is raising black children, who is now also part of our family, a Black family. So, like I said, there is a balance to be had, and these relationships can work. But when you're sitting down watching the Imitation of Life with this white woman, and she just doesn't get it, and she's just not listening, and it's very clear that she's only interested in your Black body, run, run, run! That is such a great thing about this movie. It presents this in such a reality. And it's interesting, too, in terms of talking about interracial relations, kind of even beyond relationships in this movie, kind of harkens back to our jungle fever and our Do the Right Thing episodes. Cheryl goes in her research to see this white Italian woman and this white Italian woman talks about how she feels like the mammy stereotype is misinterpreted and how the same thing happened with Italian folks and how it makes her think of like her grandmother and her mother and how like this motherly presence and stuff while just ignoring the history of it. And that is the thing to put your own spin and your own interpretations as a white person onto Black people's history is not only wrong, but it's very dangerous because it continues and perpetuates all of these things in our history and what little that we are able to find out and we are finding out more and more as time goes on, but that shit is dangerous and I just love how this film portrays every single one of those experiences. So in conclusion, this is such a wonderful and simple landmark film within black and queer cinema that says so much in ways that don't feel too on the nose or overwhelming. Cheryl does so much with so little to the point where the film does just kind of end. It ends with her kind of summarizing that her and Diana are not in a relationship anymore and her and Tamara are trying to repair their relationship. And it shows you bits and pieces of the documentary that Cheryl was able to put together through her research. And I would say that there's only, I would say that that's the only note that I have for the film, that the movie does just kind of fizzle away with this exposition, and I wonder if that had to do with budget constraints or if it really and truly is the way that Cheryl wanted to end things. Either way, this film is such a huge part of two sides of my history, and thankfully, it is a history that I don't have to invent as much, but, you know, do see that there is still not as much history. I love when she goes to the lesbian archives, which are based in a real place. And also the Lesbian History archives are in New York, very close to Nighthawk Cinema in Prospect Park, where I work, very great resource for research. And I wonder, I've been, and I hope to continue to see these black sections grow. The Watermelon Woman is now streaming on Canopy, Showtime, and Tubi, and is available to rent on Apple TV. So definitely check it out. And after this little ad break, we will be getting into the You Better Act Award. So stay tuned. Award. If this is your first time at Adventures in Black Cinema, the You Better Act Award is an award that I give out every single episode of the show to a performance that I just think is so impressive from a Black person in film, television, plays, any kind of media. So I want to give it praise and shout it off the rooftops. So this week's You Better Act Award goes to, drumroll please... Kathy Tyson in Mona Lisa. So Mona Lisa is a noir film from 1986, so 10 years before The Watermelon Woman was released. And this is a film starring Bob Hoskins about a man who's been released from prison and gets this job driving a sex worker around from, to all of her customers and all her clients, I should say. And a kind of mystery starts to happen. Things start to become amiss and he starts to wonder and piece together all of these connections while he is falling in love with Simone, who is Kathy Tyson's character. So Simone, as I said, is a sex worker in this film and definitely is perceived as another stereotype that is within Black history called the Jezebel. And I think what this character does to combat that stereotype is that you eventually see how much more there is to her. I mean, pretty much immediately. I think that's what's really impressive about Kathy Tyson's work here is that immediately you can tell that there is so much going on with this woman. You can tell that there's kind of like a sense of mystery about her and a sense of, love and the longing and just way more than meets the eye. And as the mystery unfolds, you just start to learn so much more about her. And it's just a really, really fantastic performance, a really natural performance, a performance that is filled with love and filled with mystery that I love to see both of those things. Uh, We also have Michael Caine in this movie, and we also have Clark Peters in this movie. So that's two movies where we have talked about A nigga from the Wire. So my theory continues to be proven even though this isn't necessarily a Black film. This film was written and directed by white folks. Um, It's really great. The noir elements in this movie are really, really on point. And that is largely because of Kathy and of course Bob Hoskins as well. The two of them together is such an unlikely pairing and it works so well. And it's interesting to see how her Blackness is portrayed in this movie as well. You know, there are a lot of people who talk shit about her in the beginning and kind of seeing the way that Black folks, especially Black women, had and have to navigate in these white spaces, in Britain as well. It's not just America where Black women are disrespected. It's literally, unfortunately, all over the fucking world. And this movie is really quite excellent. And there's more that Simone is hiding that connects to the very things that we've been talking about in this episode. I won't spoil it for you, but there's definitely a connection. And if you wanna check out Mona Lisa, which I highly recommend that you do, excellent, excellent film. Almost made me cry near the end, which is very hard for me to do as someone with a cold Scorpio heart. But if you wanna check it out, Mona Lisa is now streaming on HBO Max and Criterion, channel. And if you want to hear an extended version of this You Better Act Award, head on over to the Smart, Funny, and Black Patreon for even more. So in closing for today, some food for thought. What is a piece of your own personal Black history that you would like to know more about? Comment on our Instagram, at Adventures in Black Cinema. Follow us on Instagram, at Adventures in Black Cinema. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple and Spotify and give us a rating if you'd like. Thank you so much, per usual, to the team. We have Matt Mozzarella on audio. We have Cindy Edward, our production assistant. And of course, we have Miss Amanda Seals, our executive producer. Our next... Adventures in Black Cinema screening at Nighthawk will be Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit, and that'll be on 35mm film on Wednesday, July 13th at our Williamsburg location. Tickets are available at Nighthawkcinema.com That is N-I-T-E Hawkcinema.com Click on our Williamsburg location, click on Coming Soon, and you will find it. In our next episode of Adventures in Black Cinema, we will be getting into the nitty gritty of Dream Girls with the brilliant independent filmmaker Shatara Michelle Ford. I'm so excited to have them on the podcast. We talked about their film test pattern as a trust and believe at some point on the show. So I'm very excited to dig into that one. And until then, stay safe, stay black, and stay blessed. Bye, y'all. Over. Great.